Today's episode of the Crawford Talks is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from the experts at GoToMeeting, all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated, and productive at home, we're here to help you in this brave new remote working world. Find us on smart speakers or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. You can also listen at gotomeeting.com slash tips. That's gotomeeting.com slash tips. Joining us now on the Crawford Talks, he's really a man who needs no introduction. The great Bill Brown, the Astros, longtime television and radio voice. Bill, it's Mike and Jake. How are you? Doing well, Mike and Jake. Uh, I've just been on a little trip out west to um, get some photos of blue bonnets, and things are going well in the western county. <laughs> You know, I, when I ask that question, like now, I, I think of all times, Bill, like now I, I not that I don't mean it usually when I ask how someone's doing, but now I feel like I, I meet it even more because of these times. I know because we are Facebook friends. I, I see the, the travels that you have with your family and your wife. So I imagine the, the travel, unfortunately, probably has to be curtailed at this moment, given everything going on. It wasn't exactly an essential trip, but uh, maybe for mental health, it was essential, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> You got to get those photographs, I guess, right? As long as there's not have to have. a lot of people around. No. And uh, believe me, I interacted with no one the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way to do it. Yeah. Well, well, we uh, we really appreciate you joining the podcast today. Um, you know, obviously there's no base, new baseball to speak of, but, um, you know, during this, this period, it seems like everyone's leaning in toward uh, – you know, reliving the past and, and looking at old games and old uh, series. Um, and it's, it's, I think, you know, I think podcast listeners, you know, the Astros fans listening will be, um, you know, happy to hear your voice after, uh, you know, all these years. So we, what we wanted to do was go through a couple of your favorite calls from over the years. How does that sound? That sounds great. Did you find any? <laughs> I'm racking my brain. You know, people occasionally might ask that, and I would say, well, we didn't do postseason, so that eliminates an awful lot of the big moments. Yeah. I, every year that that's a bummer, isn't it? I mean, I, I that whole dynamic, I don't think we talk about it enough. So yes. the broadcasters for the 30 teams do every single game, home and road, and then when the stakes are highest, they hand it off. Yeah, and you know, um, as as thrilled as we are for the club to be in the playoffs, whenever that happens, it's a downer for us, and it's almost depressing uh, to to go to those games. Yeah, it's it's exciting as a fan, but as somebody who wants to work and is silenced, that's difficult to handle. Was that always the case? No, you know, when I first got here, uh, Jake, we, it was a little different, um, and of course. <laughs> My first year was 87, so we didn't make the playoffs until 97. But at that point, uh, the philosophy the Astros had was, hey, we want all of our broadcasters working, so we're going to take the TV guys and use them for three innings on radio and uh, maybe some pre- and post-game segments. Mm -hmm. And that was fine. We, we loved being involved. But on the other hand, the radio guys, you know, obviously had, had carried the mail all season long on radio, so I don't know how fair it was to them. 
But that didn't last too long. And after a few years of that, it was, well, we're going to have a radio team and a TV team and that's it. And then at some point, you know, the Fox regional was carrying our games. So they might have done a, what they called a pre pregame show, which was, they were allowed to do maybe a half hour or an hour show before the network pregame show came on. And uh, one year, Kevin Eschenfelder and I did some of those uh, actually when their studio was in Dallas, but uh, then that, that went away. So hmm. Uh, for, for the current guys, there's not, I think Julia did, she traveled with the club and did some, some specials, but beyond that, um, the, the broadcasters from TV were not working. Bill, before we get into some of your favorite calls, going back from when you started in the major leagues back, you know, in 76 to when you finished, you know, working full time on TV a few years ago, what would you say is the biggest change that you experienced from the mid 70s up until a few years ago? Well, I think it was the proliferation of televising every game by every team, uh, because back in those years, you talked about the mid 70s. Um, Cincinnati was was and is a small market as far as major league markets go, and the Reds were always concerned that it would cost them in live attendance if they televised more games. At that point, they limited the TV schedule to something like 50 games per year, and they really didn't want home games televised, so they always selected the opening day, which was a sellout and then two other games, and they couldn't be announced until something like 72 hours in advance. So that took care of the, the problem they had with uh, uh, televised games cutting into home attendance. But um, then uh, cable came in, and uh, that was an explosion back in the 80s with all the regional cable channels. And uh, from that point on, it's been pretty well established that televising every game really doesn't impact home attendance much at all. Huh. Interesting. Um, all right, so you ready to get into a couple of these calls? Here's so yeah. here, you. I asked you the other day for a couple, and one came immediately to mind. We'll start with that one. Um, we're gonna. I'm gonna set it up real quick. We're gonna play the audio, and then we'll discuss. Um, just really, you know, stream of consciousness. I guess what whatever uh, kind of comes to mind, memory wise, for you uh, of this moment. So to set the stage, it's June 28th, 2007. The Astros at this time are, are 32 and 46 and going nowhere uh, as a team. Uh, they're hosting the Rockies on a Thursday <laughs> night. Uh, announced attendance of 42,537, hoping to witness history. Bottom of the seventh inning, Astros trailing one nothing. Aaron Cook on the mound, working on a shutout. And uh, Brad Osmus is standing on second base with two outs. Uh, and here we go. Get your cameras ready. Second, Tavares with the throw. He's out, but that's 3,000 hits for Craig Vigio. It ties the ball game. He arrived 20 years ago from Smithtown, New York, with Texas-sized dreams. And now, as he's mobbed by his teammates, those dreams have become reality. And they'll be recognized someday in another town in New York, Cooperstown. 3,000 hits for Craig Vigio, the 27th man to reach that figure. Pretty amazing call, I have to say. Well, thank you. And I, um, you know, the story I tell about that is that uh, my friend, uh, the uh, broadcaster for the Colorado Rockies at the time, Wayne Hagen, did their radio play-by-play. 
he and I had about two weeks before that point. Uh, we were in Colorado at that time. And he said, uh, well, what you, do you have your call ready for Vigil's 3000 pip? I said, no. And he said, well, why not? I said, well, because I don't believe in uh, predetermining calls. You know, how in the world can you say what your call is going to be before you have any idea what the hit is and where it's going and all of these sorts of things? And he said, well, I think you need to give it a little more thought. I said, well, why? He said, because it's a big, big moment in the history of this team. I said, well, yeah, I understand that, but I just, I, I think it just has to be spontaneous. And so now he's got me grinding on this, you know, well, okay, I'm, I, yeah, I should probably definitely sit down and try to work something out, which I do not like doing. I just don't think it comes across well at all. So that, that line that was tagged on about the Cooperstown, New York, and this small town in New York, uh, as his hometown was something that I came up with. Uh, we got back from a road trip the night before from Milwaukee and I was driving in the garage about midnight and I had been grinding on this for about two weeks and I came up with nothing, absolutely nothing. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, it could happen tomorrow night. Probably won't because he needs three hits, but you know, I really need to get something prepared and I am completely at a blank spot here. Uh, and the garage door went up. I drove in, and something hit me, and I went inside, and I wrote it down. And I thought, well, you know, I'm not going to need this for a while, but I'm just going to tuck this in my scorebook. So I wound up, you know, just shuffling through my scorebook and pulling it out. I, I let that. I think that call you presented was an edited call. I let more crowd noise go by before I used that because I didn't want that to be part of the main call. And uh, it was just a kind of an add-on. But I, I think I owe a big vote of thanks to my buddy Wayne Hagen, voice of the Colorado Rockies, for helping me to understand that I had a little bit more responsibility than I was letting on at the time. Hmm. <laughs> Bill, one thing that stood out to me about that call is it was a unique situation because it was obviously a hit off the bat, but then Biggio tries to, like he did so many times, try to extend into a double. He's thrown out a second base, and you kind of seamlessly go right from it's the 3,000 hit, he's thrown out, it's back to his 3,000 hit. Like, that to me was the really impressive part. How were you able to seamlessly go from, hey, he's thrown out at second base, back to the historic moment and focusing on that part? Well, I think what, what really stopped me cold was it was just a buzz kill for him to get thrown out on that. You know, it just, for me, it was, oh, no, no, this is going to, this is going to diminish this moment here, the fact that he was thrown out at second. Uh, so we've got to get off onto something else here. Um, and I don't know, Mike, it's just, uh, I, I actually, the more I hear that call, the less I like it, to be quite frank with you. Uh, but that's what we have. <laughs> and, uh, oh, stop. I don't know. I just, I thought it was a buzzkill when he got thrown out and we, we can't be dwelling on that here. We've got to move on. <laughs> that was a wacky game. Just looking at the box score. I mean, he had five singles in the game. Um, they won eight, five and 11 innings after it was one, nothing in the seventh. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, and then, obviously the game is secondary at that point, but I just thought that was interesting. Right. And then, you know, Carlos Lee with the game winning grand slam and that, that kind of got lost in the shuffle. Uh, but it was, uh, I, I think the fans got their money's worth that night. No doubt about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Bill, before we, before we go on to some of the other calls that, that we have that we want to get your, your take on and just listen and appreciate as a broadcaster at such a high level a guy who did it for 
such who did it so well for such a long time. When you go back and you listen to tapes, you listen to calls, what to you stands out like, I really nailed that one. What, what does Bill Brown look for? I, I'm always concerned about the technical aspect of it. Did, did I give the score? Did I describe what? Of course, on TV, you know, you really don't describe. But uh, did, I, did I, you know, capsulize what the essence was of this play, the importance, what, what factors, you know, should I have added that I did? You know, and I, I think probably most of us who do this are, are pretty self-critical. Well, I should have done this and I missed that. And, you know, you just, you only get one chance at it. It's, you know, when I write um, uh, an article, then I can go back and I can polish it and then I can let it sit for a couple of days, depending on what the deadline is and work on it some more and just try to really make it the, the best I can possibly make it with a lot of extra thought. And that just isn't reality when you're doing play by play. You get one chance at it and that's it. So, it's kind of hard to cut yourself some slack, but I guess you need to. It sounds difficult. I'm going to stick to writing. <laughs> <laughs> or at least trying to write. Um, all right. So it's September 23rd, 2004. Uh, the Astros this time are in the thick of a wild card race. They're playing in San Francisco. It's the ninth inning. The Astros trail 3-2. Runners on first and second. No outs. Lance Berkman at the plate, Dustin Hermanson on the mound. The count is 1-0. Jason Christensen back to the bullpen for San Francisco. High drive right field. Michael Tucker back. At the wall. And left Berkman my. Has hit a three-run homer. To give the Astros the lead here in the ninth inning. Wow. You've got to be kidding me. It looked as if Tucker was getting ready to catch that ball pretty easily, and then Berkman winds up taking the tour with a three-run homer. Wow! 5-3 to three, Houston as Berkman hits number 29, giving him four runs batted in for the game and 102 for the year. You talk about coming back from the dead. <laughs> what do you remember about that one? Well, that, that's the beauty of Jim Deshays. Um, what I remember is that ball was an out. It was an out. And then something happened. Some gust of wind came along that had not been there. We were absolutely shocked. And Jim Deshays did a much better job of portraying that than I did. But I remember a quote from Berkman the next day, something like, well, God blew on that one or something, you know, to that effect. And that's the way I felt this this ball is a home run, then I don't know what I'm watching because I didn't see that as a home run. I never saw it as a home run. Uh, you know, the old Jack Buck, I can't believe what I just saw thing would have come into play really well. Uh, but no, it was just, and in, you know, this is the beauty of baseball too, because there's so many games. You're coming down to just a few games left. It's a big one. They really, really need this. They're on the road. They're trailing. They're running out of outs. And then this happens and you just – Feel the tide turn on the whole season when that happens. How, as you got on in your career, how easy or challenging was it to figure it out off the bat whether something was going to be a home run or not? I don't think it was easy at all for me. Uh, there'd be balls, you know, like a, a Bonds home run or a Bagwell home run or a Sosa shot. They were way out. There was no doubt. The dome was tough, though, because it was 
actually tougher to get the depth perception in the Astrodome of whether a ball would, would be out or not, because so many balls got up in the air and you, you thought maybe, okay, and then they'd be caught, you know, 15 feet short of the wall. Uh, but I never, I never felt that, that confident in assuming the ball was going to be a home run. And my tendency was to be very cautious, was to wait maybe a little bit too long sometimes, be absolutely sure because the worst thing in the world is to say that's a home run and then the guy catches it. Uh, and I've done that. That is the worst feeling in the world. <laughs> Bill, what was the adjustment like going from from a broadcasting standpoint, going from the Astrodome to then Enron Field? It was totally different, Mike. Uh, there just seemed to be so much more energy. And there was energy in the Astrodome for a playoff game or, or you know, a sellout game on opening day. But um, it was generally a quieter, more sedate stadium. And um, I just thought Enron Field with the roof open, especially uh, those early games in 2000, uh, was really vibrant. I loved having the, the outdoor feel on a nice uh, early season day uh, to the ballpark. And uh, I just thought there was a lot more energy to it. So it was a, a welcome change. I'll tell you what, back to the uh, the depth perception part of off the bat, if I would be so bad at that. I mean, I'm in the press box and I'll like kind of mutter to myself off the bat if a ball's gone or not. And I'm like 50% success rate. Like, it's no, really I'm right hard. there with you, Jake. I'm right <laughs> there with you. Yeah. And that's why I think that, especially on radio, you know, when you're not tied to the picture, you can wait just a portion of a second longer and it's always wise for me to do that even though when the crowd comes up people are expecting you to tell them at that very moment what is happening you still have a little bit more time than you think you do sometimes uh, to make sure you're right on the call the, the the san francisco ballpark where berkman hit this home run for me that's the best ballpark in the majors does that where does that rank for you I would agree with you. I put it right there. I think that place is absolutely fabulous. It has everything, including the smell of the garlic fries as you're coming in the ballpark, Jake. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what other ballparks stand out to you, Bill? Um, I, you know, I have several that I really like. I, I, um, I like San Diego Park. Um, I would say uh, Seattle's very nice. Uh, people are always asking, where should I go on vacation? I said, well, if it's July or later, go to Seattle. You know, you need to beat the heat trip when you're living in Houston. Um, yep. I like um, I like Washington. I, I think that's a nice one. Um, there are several that I really like, and, and uh, that's been kind of the beauty of watching baseball unfold down through the decades is that we've gone from the cookie-cutter stadiums to these individually different ballparks and uh, i think it's very enjoyable for the fans to to have those parks that stand out in different ways definitely and hopefully uh fans will get a chance to get to the new rangers ballpark this year because that looks uh pretty cool from the pictures so it does hopefully it doesn't have to wait a year and hopefully they can open that thing this year (laughs) um one more call that i didn't um, warn you about and okay. it's one I picked one I found it's not so much about the call itself which it is a good call but more about the moment um, to set okay. the stage a little bit it's April 5th 1991 at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium 
The sixth okay. career game for a rookie who's just been acquired the previous year from his hometown Red Sox. John mm-hmm. Smoltz started the game, opposite Jim Deshays, actually. Um, but now at this <laughs> yeah. point, Kent Merker is on. Uh, it's the ninth inning, and the score is tied at one. There's two outs, and Ken Caminetti is standing on first base. Caminetti was going. It's sky to left. Deion Sanders at the wall, and Bagwell has his first major league home run. Jeff Bagwell has delivered, and the Astros lead it now, 3-1. to one. Oh, what a relief it is for Bagwell, who has been pressing who has wanted so much to help this ball club and get himself established in the big leagues. And that is a big one. I just, a few parts of that I thought were really cool. I mean, the idea of a Bagwell pressing and trying to, you know, help help the team and establish itself in the big leagues looking back. And also <laughs> um, Deion Sanders being part of the play. I don't know. It was just, an, it was one that caught, caught my ear. Yeah. And um, I always tried to to place the other team's uh, fielders or the Astros fielders. You know, I, I think that's what most play-by-play guys try to do. Okay, who's who's there in left field? Uh, who's playing shortstop? That kind of thing. Um, I think it's important uh, to do it. Not all broadcasters do it. Um, I think if you don't do it, you're kind of lazy. That's just my own opinion. I, I think that's one thing you need to do for the fans. Back then, 1991, uh, in, in April, could you tell Bagwell was, was going to be what he was or something close to it? Or, or how did that kind of, in your mind, progress uh, your opinion of, his, of what he could be? I couldn't tell. Uh, I looked at his stats from, from AA New Britain uh, the year before. I think he hit four home runs that year, but he had a very high batting average. And it seemed that he was one of those uh, exceptional players to acquire in a trade. Uh, for a Larry Anderson, who was near the end of his career at the time. But um, I don't know. Being from the show me state, I, I get very uh, doubtful about prospects <laughs> sometimes. I really want to see them do it several times before I'm going to jump on board that bandwagon. And I'm, I would like to see them do it for about three years, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I couldn't, I couldn't say that I saw that coming for Jeff's career. I was hopeful, but I couldn't say that I did. At what point, Bill, kind of expanding the conversation to some of the different changes in baseball, at what point did you realize that the sport was moving to anywhere close to where it is as far as the analytics goes? When do you think that's that tide started to turn from your perspective? Yeah, I guess it was um, when the Jeff Luno regime took over here that I started to, to figure that out. Although, you know, the Astros team was so bad, it was hard to tell that um, – the analytics had any kind of influence whatsoever. But, you know, we started seeing things uh, behind the scenes. We started hearing, you know, from the different managers at the time. Uh, it might have been Bo Porter. Um, but, you know, what, what was going into the pregame preparations, and we heard it from the players and the coaches and things of that nature, started to understand and read articles about other teams doing this as well, um, exactly what was going into this. And then that uh, – really took hold with the draft too. what went into the players they drafted and the players they traded for. So I, I don't know that it was exactly then in uh, 2013, we'll say, or a couple of years later, but I, I think everybody wants to see a team be successful on the field before they're willing to buy into the analytics that led to that success. Do you remember the first time or two when they started shifting and, and you guys – 
were calling those games, like what was your reaction or were you open-minded to it as a, a, a guy who'd been watching the game for, for a long time? I was somewhat open-minded to it. Uh, hey, let's face it, Jake, you know, you and I and, and Mike, we see so many baseball games a year. I'm open to anything. Just do something different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah enter, entertain us somehow. Give us some, you know, when you're on the air every day or you're writing every day, doing a talk show every day, you want things to talk about that are different. So, yeah, throw it out there. Let's go with it. Let's, let's criticize it or jump on the bandwagon with it or whatever we want to do. But, uh, yeah, this was different. I like that. But I remember uh, Lucas Harrell was pitching for the Astros. And he was a right-handed sinker baller. And somebody who was a left-handed batter got a ground ball hit that just trickled through the left side of the infield. And the shortstop was over on the first base side of second. He couldn't get to the ball. And Lucas Harrell was absolutely (laughs) beside himself. He just could not stand this thought that he had made his pitch and he did not get an out. And I remember uh, talking to him about this at at a hotel um, oh, it was like a week later, and he was just still just fuming about this. Just absolutely could not buy into the shifting thing. And, of course, Keichel, Keichel was the same way for a while, mm-hmm. and he was the same type, you know, sinker ball guy. And, you know, when you, when you don't strike out a lot of people, those plays that aren't made behind you just, just loom so much larger. You can't come back from that as easily by striking out the side, you know, we'll say like that. And uh, so I, I thought, yeah, these guys have a point, too. So I, I think there probably is a way for a pitcher to somehow override the shift. You know, to, you know, I, I know you don't want him standing on the mound and, and motioning the shortstop back over on the third base side of the bag. But something has to happen here. There has to be a meeting of the minds so this pitcher can be comfortable doing what it is you want him to do. And and that's what I questioned about the shift at the time. Bill, one of the one of the reasons we also wanted to have you on the podcast is to discuss what's going to happen here because regardless of, of when the baseball season is going to start in 2020, it's obviously going to be a shortened season and we'll see how many games they ultimately end up playing. You've experienced this a couple times in your career as a broadcaster and let's start in 1981 when you were with the Cincinnati Reds. What What stands out about the 81 shortened season from your standpoint? Well, what stood out certainly uh, with us in Cincinnati was that the Reds had the best record in baseball and they did not go to the playoffs. <laughs> oh, boy. You, you talk about a city yeah. that was just boiling over this uh, way of dividing the season into first half, second half, which is the way it's done in the minor leagues typically. Uh, and this was arrived at, you know, during the 50-day-old strike. Well, how are we going to come back and finish off the season? You know, we've lost all this momentum. Okay, we'll just start all over again. We'll have a second half. I understand it, but I think it was a terrible, terrible decision, as you can prove by the results. So I, I looked um, on the Internet because we've had, we've had a few days since we knew we were going to get together here. And I looked it up, and Cincinnati had a record of 66-42. and 42. That was a 6-11 winning percentage for the entire season. And that was the best in the major leagues and did not go to the playoffs. What happened was in the first half up to the strike, the Reds were 35 and 21. The Dodgers were 36 and 21. 
that gave them the division by a half game, even though Cincinnati didn't play that game to get evens in, ga- in get even in games played. So that oh was God. faulty decision making. <laughs> then they come out in the second half, and Houston wins the second half, going thirty three and twenty. Cincinnati's thirty one and twenty one, a game and a half out. So you know, and then L.A. and Houston wound up playing each other in the first round of the playoffs. The Dodgers won. The Dodgers go on to beat the Yankees in the World Series. And uh, that's just wrong. That, that can't happen again. <laughs> that was a miscarriage of baseball justice. Yeah, I mean, and if you're going to do that, I don't understand how not every team's playing the same amount of games in the first half. Yeah. But, I mean, if that happened in now in the, the social media Twitter age, like, can you imagine? <laughs> oh. oh, my God. Oh. And, Jake, uh, you and I talked about this a little bit the other day, but um, I don't know, of course, uh, how it's going to work for this season, but – I know it's under discussion to have uh, no divisions, uh, do away with divisions, just have 15 teams in the National League, 15 teams in the American League. You start wherever it is, June 1st or wherever it may be, and everybody plays the remaining schedule from that point on. And I would prefer that as a fan because I don't think it makes sense to have divisions since so many divisional games have been missed. And we'll say yeah. maybe, uh, you know, let's say, okay, the Astros might have missed uh, 12 games with, with Seattle, okay? And they might have missed only uh, six games with, um, you know, Oakland. Well, that's not fair. Right. And then Oakland wouldn't have that same schedule in terms of games missed with various teams in their division. There's no way to make them up. So why go under the pretense of having divisions and saying that, okay, you won your division, you guys all played the same schedule? No, you didn't. Boy, that, that's, that, that's fascinating. Yeah, I never delved too deep into this 1981 season, but it's, it's a doozy. <laughs> I, it is uh, a doozy. I, yeah, I agree with you, though. I mean, I think the Astros would have already had seven games against the Angels at the end of this weekend. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, they're going to, if they play, say they start July 1st, for argument's sake, um, you know, which, which in my opinion seems a little ambitious right now, but let's just say that's what it is. You're, you're going to have different, um, a different amount of games that you've already would have missed against each of those teams. So, yeah, that, that makes sense. And then how would you do it? You just do how many teams make the playoffs in your 15-team leagues? Well, what I'm hearing is that they're considering seven teams in each league making the playoffs. Um, and there, there are different ways of looking at it. I, I think there's one, I think Scott Boris has a plan to play until December from what I read. Uh, Jay, yeah. I, yes. You probably read that one. Uh, I don't see that happening, Scott, uh, because you're talking about games in only California or the dome stadiums, uh, neutral stadiums for playoffs. No, no. That's, hey, I could spend December good. in LA. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. No, I don't. I don't think that makes any sense. But uh, I do see expanded playoffs. I, I, you know, want to go with seven teams in each league. Then the team that finishes with the best overall winning percentage in each league needs to get a buy, uh, and let the others fight it out. And and you know, I would like to see uh, at least a best of five series instead of best of three series. If they want to, you know, to me, that's one way that they probably will look very strongly at making up games, just adding playoff games because there's more at stake. Um, there, there is time to expand the postseason by a little bit. And because the season has been shortened, it's just a way of saying, hey, we did everything we could 
to give the best team uh, the, the long haul to prove itself, which is what baseball is all about. So, Bill, on the flip side, we went through 81 and how bizarre that setup was. So the 94 strike, when the players walked off the job late in that summer, did you guys feel like, hey, the World Series is going to be canceled or do you still retain hope? Well, it was very acrimonious all year long. So from that standpoint, I don't know that we thought it would be solved quickly, but the the urgency to it being that late in the season and going on strike at that point may have led some of us to think, okay, you know, cooler heads are going to prevail here when they realize what they've done. They'll be back in maybe September and and they'll finish it on out. And uh, then, of course, it just became ridiculous. And uh, I think the worst thing baseball ever could have done. It was so hard to get the momentum going the next year because they were still on strike. The next spring, we had replacement players. We went to spring training and broadcast games with replacement players, came back home to the Astrodome, actually had a little banquet on the field for the replacement players and handed out trophies. Hey, here's our player of the spring, you know, John Smith. And, uh, <laughs> and we're looking at each other saying, this just isn't right. <laughs> <laughs> there was one guy, Jake, there was one player on the Astros replacement team. I don't know his name, but he was driving uh, about a 20-year-old Lincoln Continental. And, uh, you know, these poor guys, I mean, they wanted to play baseball in the major leagues in the worst way, but a lot of them had played A-ball or semi-pro ball or something like that. And uh, most of them needed money. So this guy had about a 20-year-old uh, Lincoln Continental, and it was leaking oil. Oh, my God. And uh, so every day, the story was that he would tell people, every day he would open up the trunk to his Continental and he'd have a case of motor oil in the trunk. And he'd have an open can back there and he would just uh, start pouring some in into his car. And I uh, figured, well, you know, this is going to leak out by the end of tomorrow, but it'll get me through the next day. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean, that we were talking to Steve Sparks um a couple of weeks ago, a few episodes of the podcast back. And it struck me that was his first opening day roster in 95 after the strike. And it, he, I think he said there was like a two and a half week, three week spring training. That seems awfully short for a uh, bunch of players who hadn't played since what, August of the previous year. Um, right. I mean, do you remember that being like a, a thing where it was like way too short? <laughs> I do. I do. But um, the circumstances, uh, of course, you know, the three of us, we don't have to worry about getting in shape. You know, we're let's play tomorrow. Uh, but no, we don't, exactly. we don't pull too many hamstrings either because we don't really work that hard. Um, but no, there's an understanding that, hey, yeah, they're in some kind of shape, but not game shape. So we're going to have to ease into it. And, and I think that uh, really presents a clear threat uh, to the situation this year. Players are working out after a fashion, but it's not not the fashion that they've been used to in the winter time, and they don't they don't have access to gyms for the most play, place uh, for the most part now. Few of them might in their homes, but um, I think that that's why there are going to be, of course, extra players on the roster. Uh, on the other hand, you know, let's say they say they embarked upon a 110 game schedule, which was roughly the the 1981. Uh, finish uh see the reds were 66 and 42 so yeah they played uh, 100 108 games that year so let's say we have 108 110 games this year um it's going to be very difficult for a manager to give 
a player, you know, three or four weeks off, right, and nurse an injury. And the Astros have been doing this. Uh, they've, they've had guys who have gone down for lengthy periods of time just because they could. They, because they're thinking postseason, they're thinking, yeah, we've got enough depth on the roster. We're just going to make sure this guy comes back and he doesn't go down again. I don't think that any team is going to feel it has that luxury if uh, the schedule is 110 games this year. At the same time, though, it would make for like a, a sprint, you know, if it would just right. it, it would add some new element to it. Um, that we're not used to, um, which yes, would be interesting. Would. You know, like the guys right. like Lance McCullers or Jose Arquiti who, you know, would enter an 162-game regular season if it had been played normally this year uh, with innings uncertainty, you know, it, it kind of changes the dynamic there. It really does. I, and I know you've done the math too, but you figured 21, 22 starts, six innings per start. That's not a problem for anybody uh, in this starting rotation now it's totally different than what we were looking at a few weeks ago bill i wanted to, i would be remiss if i didn't ask you this just think about our, our overall situation people are obviously stressed about the economy and just staying at home every single day you know you've seen a lot of life in your time is, th- is there something in bill brown's life that can help put us put this into perspective to help us get through the next month two three months however long it's going to be I remember this is, of course, it's it's totally unusual uh, for anybody in our lifetime. But um, I remember in '81, just you know, I, I wasn't a golfer at that time, but I took up golf, which is one way to kill a day, um, and that 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 is allowed uh, these days. But that's not to say you're going to be in the best of mood if you're forced to play golf, so, golf all the time. But um, oh, I think reading, you know, I mean, there there are all these things that people are doing, and it's it's hilarious, right? Uh, my my neighbor, I think, has cleaned out his garage twelve times already. Uh, so that that would be the extreme of where I am on the scale. But n- nonetheless, um, people have their projects; they have things that they put off and postpone for years and years and years, and now they're starting to embrace those ideas and actually uh, relish the thought of doing them. Um, we, we all have books that we maybe wanted to read at some point or movies we wanted to see. And this is, this is the time to do it. But I, I do think that sports has certainly been placed in a whole different perspective. And there's a lot more important stuff in the world than sports. We all know that. But we all certainly miss it at the same time. Is there anything that you've really been, aside from your your blue bonnet photos from Washington County. <laughs> Are there any uh, anything that you've really um, focused on to kind of bide the time right now? Well, it's kind of like you guys, you know. I think anybody who's in broadcasting is at that point of, of being able to do something from home on the phone, uh, record something on an audio file and send it to somewhere. And uh, for instance, I just volunteer reading at Sight into Sound, which is a radio station for print handicapped um, people who are dyslexic and, and blind and, and just can't read print. And uh, so we have uh, volunteer readers. We probably have 150 volunteer readers, a lot of them former teachers wow. who come in uh, to the station and they record their programs during the week. Now nobody's allowed in the building, but we're all doing our programs uh, from home. And uh, they're, hmm. they're uploaded on a website. So I, I think the key is having something to do, having some kind of a schedule. And ideally, you can help somebody, you know, whether it's um, deliver meals or calling somebody. And my wife's been good at that. She's making contact with, with friends, maybe in other states, uh, people we haven't heard from for a while. And 
I think it's a good time to just, just chill out and uh, you, can, you can now have a 20-minute conversation, whereas with most of our schedules, it's usually five to six minutes and we're good. Yeah. <laughs> he is the great Bill Brown, the longtime radio and obviously television voice of the Houston Astros, a member of the Texas Sports Hall of Fame, uh, somebody who has been voted Texas Sportscaster of the Year as well. Bill, this was a real treat for us. Thank you so much for taking the time. Well, thank you so much, Mike and uh, Jake. Uh, you guys do great work, and it was a pleasure to be on with you. The pleasure is ours. Thank you, sir.